coming to you live from Canada. Here comes your game-changing, life-transforming turning point moment. Ahem. Yes, this is the sign you've been looking for. You're listening to Engage City Church. Powered by hope, not hype. Online at engagechurch.ca. Uh, we're, starting, we're starting a brand new series called Dreams. Just turn to your neighbor and say, Dreams. Dreams. Coming to you this week at Engage City Church. Uh, dreams. And we're going to be going through this uh, topic for the next five weeks. So today, I just need you to understand that this is the beginning of something. So I'm going to give you a whole bunch of background information. We're going to build off of it as the weeks progress. So if you feel like, I need more, you're going to get it just over the next five weeks. If you're ready, say, I'm ready. All right, wonderful. Let's jump into the Bible. Second Chronicles chapter 8. This is what started all of this. Second Chronicles chapter 8, verse 1, and I will explain. At the end of 20 years, in which Solomon had built the house of the Lord and his own house. You're like, hold on, there's a comma there. There's not a period. That's not even a full thought. That's not even a thing. Oh, it's a thing, and it's, it's, it's what started me on this, this journey and how the Lord met me and, and started walking me down this path, which became this series, Dreams, is that many of us, um, we go through our lives and we, and we want to do something with our lives, right? We, 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 like, we want to we build something. We want to have something that has like a lasting impact. Anyone, or just me. Like, I want to have like a legacy. I want like, I want to pass things down from generation to generation. You know, I did my part. I have two sons. I'm, I'm, otherwise, the Esslinger line would have died with me. I, I did, we made sure that it continues on. Like, I want to, I want to build something that lasts. I want to, I want to build a legacy. And, and oftentimes, we, we, we can kind of look at our lives. We go, okay, we need to do something. We got to get our hustle on. We're going to start a business or work our job. We're going to climb the corporate ladder. We're going to do something to provide for our families. And so we spend a lifetime building our families. And then somewhere in the middle or just like three quarters of the way through, or maybe if you're lucky and you're smart, right at the very beginning you go, man, I'm investing everything that I have into building my family, into building my life, but I don't feel like like, I've done something. Like, is this it? Or maybe you sit on the other side of the fence, and you go, man, church is so important. Jesus is so important. I just want to do something to build the kingdom. I want to I build the church. And you spend your entire life sacrificing everything else in your life to, to serve the church and to build it and see it be great. And you volunteer and you, and, and you give. And, and thank you so much for those who do. But you, you go way over the line. You're like, is that a thing? Is a pastor talking about me going like serving too much at church? Yeah. And, and, you, and, you, and you discover that your whole life, you've, you've missed large pieces of your life and large pieces of other lives because you've sacrificially given something that God never asked you to give. That'll preach. Another message. And so we live in this tension of, I want to I build my life, I want to have a successful life, and success means all kinds of different things, and I'm not just talking about the things that you think I'm talking about. I'm talking about like the, the total package of your life. Like I just want to, I want to have done something and I want to have, see my family succeed and I want to see like, I want to I see my kids do well and I want to see all that stuff. But at the same time, you know, 
there's God over here, and I want to serve his church, and I want to serve him well, and I want to do what he wants for me. So we live in attention. We live in the either or. Either I'm going to build my whole life, and I'm going to do it at, at, at the, really at the, at the cost of everything else. Or we say we're going to serve the church and we're going to do that at the cost of everything else. And yet here's Solomon who's looking back on his life. Now, Chronicles, you have to understand, are like history books that kind of gloss over some of the details. They provide like a top-level view. That's what Chronicles are. They provide a a top-level view of all the things that happen in the lives of the kings. And so in this retrospective moment, there's Solomon talking about the last 20 years, or them talking about Solomon's last 20 years, as he was known as somebody who built the house of the Lord and built his own house together. I would contend that the, the way forward, the plan that God has for us is not to build our life at the cost of everything else, and it's not to build the church or build the kingdom of God at the cost of everything else, but I believe that God's pattern or his template or his formula for his life, his desire for our lives is that we would be people who have built the house of the Lord and have built our own house, and we've done it together because both will be stronger for it. It's a balance and it's a tension. And if you were to dive into those 20 years, there's probably a time where the shift focuses one side to another. For a season, he's a little more focused over here. and a season, he's a little more focused over here. But it's incredible. The other amazing thing about this, this is right after Solomon built the temple, which you can go back and read as some homework if you want. But Solomon fulfilled his father's dream. David wanted to build that temple so bad. He had plans, he had designs, he had everything laid out. He even started getting supplies, and God said, hey, David, by the way, it's not going to be you who's going to build build my house. Excuse me, Lord? I've already bought nice stuff. Like, I started buying the furniture years ago, and it's stunning, you know? <laughs> it's like HGTV with the Lord. Like, I think we could over here, we'll just do this nice altar over here, and it's going to be beautiful gold accents. It's going to be wonderful. Hey, David, thanks for the thoughts, but it's not going to be you, bud. Excuse me, Lord? Now you've got blood on your hands. You're a warrior. We need somebody, a king of peace, who can come and build this house. And so Solomon was God's chosen to build this house. He fulfilled his father's legacy because David literally bought all the supplies, everything, made all the plans. He said, okay, no worries. Solomon, this is for you. So all Solomon had to do was execute. Sometimes, especially if you're 30 years of age and younger, 35 years of age and younger, we get accused of wanting to do it all on our own, that we don't appreciate those who have come before, that we're not aware or we're not uh, um, willing to recognize the contributions of others, can I tell you, that's not the way that we build a lasting uh, legacy. That's not the way that we, we make an impact. We don't make an impact by reinventing the wheel all the time. We do it by standing on the shoulders of others and building our home and building the house of the Lord is a multi-generational effort and we just stand and we stack on the shoulders of each generation. We go higher and we go further when we get there faster. Why? Because we're thankful thankful for the sacrifices, we're thankful for the investments that were made through the generations, and we move forward together. This isn't about one group that's going to move forward. This is about, hey, there's a pattern, there's a template, there's a dream that God has for me, and and that is that I would be a person who would build the house of the Lord and who would build my own house and who would do it well. Anyone interested? 
All right, well, why don't you stand? <laughs> Just kidding. I was going to wrap it up right there. Does anyone do a yearly Bible reading plan? Anyone do a yearly? Okay, don't all raise your hands at one time. Uh, if anyone does a yearly Bible reading plan ever. Has anyone ever done one in their life? Hey, all right. So you know the worst part about yearly Bible reading plans is that you always start in Genesis. Like I've literally read Genesis like 30 times. And then, you know, like when you fall off the bandwagon, you're like, okay, I guess I'm going to start again. You go back to Genesis. So I probably read Genesis uh, 124 times because, you know, sometimes you need to start Genesis four or five times a year just to keep that plan uh, fresh and rolling. So, I mean, I've read Genesis a lot. And, man, I'm going to say maybe you have too. And you're like, listen, we don't need to talk about Genesis, but because it's the beginning of the year, why don't you turn your Bible to Genesis chapter two? Because we might as well dig into it. You know, we might as well get into it because, you know, why not? And uh, you're reading it anyways, so it's fresh in your mind. Or Actually, most of you are not reading it, I just learned. Uh, so maybe consider starting this week a yearly Bible reading plan. Bible in a year, it's a great thing for everybody involved. You can also get it on audiobook, so try that on for size if something else doesn't work. Genesis chapter 2, verse 1. If you're ready, Sam, ready. I need to move quickly. Thus the heavens and earth were finished. And all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work. Turn to somebody and say, work, work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day. Someone turn to somebody else and say, rest. He rested on the seventh day from all the work. Say work, work. that he had done. So God blessed. You got a text, buddy. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Can I tell you the Bible starts in the in the most strangest of fashions. It starts with God going to work. Like he gets up in the morning, brushes his teeth, does his hair, puts his pants on, you know, one leg at a time, just like everybody else. But I'm assuming it's kind of a cosmic robe. That's kind of how I've always seen it. So maybe it's like one body at a time. You know, it's like, <laughs> or maybe he's like, snapping his hair. I don't know. But he gets up, he rolls up his sleeves, and he's heading to the office, and he's like, and he, his work is like saying it. Uh, his work is, is building this earth, building this universe, building this galaxy. Colossians 1 does this whole amazing breakthrough, breakdown of how it happened and that Jesus was a part of it. But the Bible starts with God going to work. Interesting. Did you know the Bible and Christianity uh, and Judaism, because we say, have the same origin story, <laughs> It is fun fact. You're like, what? Yeah. Christianity came out of Judaism. You're welcome. Uh, no other religion has an origin story like ours, where God simply goes to work. Most other uh, origin accounts in other religions start with a warring of cosmic forces. Usually there's some kind of big epic battle, but in the Bible, however, uh, this is not true. Creation is not the result of a conflict, mainly because God has no rival. There is no warring factions. They're just, God went to work. <laughs> Creation, then, is not the aftermath of a battle or a contest, but the plan of a craftsman. God made the world not as a warrior digs through the trenches, but as an artist makes a masterpiece. That's our origin story, that God created 
this. In a masterful, beautiful way, God rolled up his sleeve, went to work. I don't know uh, if you can recall, does anyone remember when that time in school when the teacher asked you what you wanted to be when you grew up? I remember it clearly. It was grade two for me. Grade two. That seems early, Bethany. Is that early? Yeah, it seems a little early because I'm like, how does a grade twoer even like understand what going to work or what their parents do? And I remember, like any child who has no idea how to answer that question, I uh, <laughs> I just drew what my dad does. And but how do you quantify what an accountant is when you're a child? It's like one ah 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 two ah like is that is that is that what it is? I, like I'm just like. I'm just making a Sesame Street parallel here. So I, I drew my dad at a desk, and that was then me going to be an accountant when you grow up. But, I mean, we've all had those phases. Like, okay, you know, many many of us have decided to want to be police officers, and that's cool. Thank God most of us are not. You know, it's like uh, some of us wanted to be, I don't know. What did you want to be when you want to Just yell it out. What did you want to be when you grew up? Anyone? A, a fire truck. All right, that's an amazing and apparently nobody else had any goals or aspirations. What do you want to be when you grow up? Nothing. I have no dreams. Don't preach this series. I'm coming back in six weeks. Um, but it, it's, an, it's an amazing thing. Like, how does a grade tour quantify what they're going to be when they grow up? I don't know. But what, what does happen is that something gets taught when we ask people that question, and we begin to insinuate that life is a life full of destination points. That, oh, I want to be a cop, and so I'm going to spend my whole life working towards this one goal and becoming this one thing, and then something amazing happens. You become that one thing, and then what? Because the whole purpose of your life was to be that one thing. You know, maybe your goal isn't career-related. Maybe it was, hey, I just, I just want to be married. I just want to have a family. Okay. You know, I, we do marriage counseling, uh, premarital counseling, and it's always fun because uh, people are, like, are so excited. And, and, and I always have this, like, go-to line, like, listen, we're not, you know, we're not here to prepare your wedding. We're here to prepare your marriage, you know. It's like because the amazing thing is once you get, Married and the wedding's over, you kind of got to be married, and <laughs> you'll you'll find you'll figure it out. Like, <laughs> and there's a reason the Bible started with work. You know, it's like, <laughs> but we've got these goals, but we we've built up this illusion or this idea that that life is really about plateaus and, and check marks, and that we'll just get to this plateau and get to this thing and get to this checkpoint and then we we chase them down with everything that we have and we usually sacrifice everything else along the way and we get there and we go okay now what now when we get here we search for the next thing and then we just chase after and we search after the next thing and we chase after it because each one of those destinations or road markers are not satisfactory within and of themselves have you ever have you ever fulfilled all of your dreams have you ever fulfilled one of your dreams How'd that feel? Yeah, for about 20 minutes, right? You're like, yeah, this is awesome. Okay. That took 20 years. <sighs> and then on the seventh day, you turn around, you look at it, you go, ah, that looks good. And you pause. There's a, 
See, there's a rhythm. And we'll talk about rest, and we'll talk about that rhythm as we go. But in the most simplistic form, the reason we, we, we like markers and we like, we like measurable results and we like all these kinds of things is because we work as hard as we can in, in some subconscious, deeply spiritual kind of way to, to work as hard as we can and achieve as much as we can in an effort to say, Daddy, look, I made you proud. Or to put it in modern vernacular, I just want God to say the same thing that he said of me that he said to Jesus, well done, my good and faithful servant. And so we work hard to demonstrate our work. And that's deeply embedded inside of us. But something is missing. See, God doesn't only work to create. Like, he created human beings. But he also works to care for his creation. It's this idea called providence. Turn to somebody and say providence. See, he formed man in Genesis 2, verse 7. Then he planted a garden for man in, in, in Genesis 2, verse 6 and 8, which you've all read in your yearly Bible reading plan. And then he fashions a wife for him. And he takes care of him. God works as a provider. But here's the amazing thing about God's work. God doing work was never about him establishing worth because he was already worthy. Did you get that? God doing work wasn't about him establishing worth because he was already worthy. He was already the highest. He already had no rivals. And so when we look at our life and we look at, at, at our work, and by work, I just don't mean vocations. I, I talk, I'm talking about the, the, the dreams, the visions, ideas that God has placed in your heart, the gifts, the skills, and the abilities, and the things that he's put in your hand for you to do. And, and, and we, we look at these things. These are not worth-generating tools. You're already worthy. Why? Because God deemed that you were. Because he created you and he created a world and he did that so he could take care of you. Because of divine providence of God being your provider, your worth has already been established. You're worth all of this. You can't work to be worthy. You can't work to be worthy. Because this exists, you can know and you are reminded, hey, God wanted me to be here, right here, right now. This is Genesis 2, verse 15. The Lord took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Hmm. God works. He takes a break. He makes man. He says, hey, man, here's a good idea. Why don't you work, too? You see, most of us don't like this idea of work, like, Work, you know, work kind of just gets in the way of everything else. It's, it's fine, right? Like, you know, it's this, this responsibility. It's this thing that carries us. It's like something that we try and shed. Some of us look at work as a form of, of punishment. Other of us, we look at it as a tool to prove something. But we didn't come by this idea on our own. We actually inherited this idea that work is, is, is worthless and it's not a good thing and it's not a good idea. We inherited this idea from the Greeks. See, the Greeks decided that, that the only thing that was worth doing was contemplating life. And so they created structures and stratas and classes so that those who were the elite and those who were the advanced and those who were high and mighty had to do nothing but contemplate life. 
and those who were below would work so that the others who were more elevated didn't have to toil in vain. And that idea has been passed down in the generations and still remains with us today. It's why you don't want to apply for that job that you believe is worth your pay below your pay grade because you think you're taking on some kind of shame for doing it. Can I tell you, and I've told you this story before, but when I started managing Starbucks and I wasn't a full-time pastor anymore, I had people come up to me constantly and apologize to me for my place in life. We're so sorry you have to do that. Have to do what? Well, you have to, you know, like, you were a pastor. I still am. I'm starting something new. Yeah, I know, but, like, you were the real thing. No, yeah, no, I, I, I get what you're saying. And that's where my phrase that I used at work every single day at Starbucks Living the Dream came from because I literally had to remind ourselves that this is the work that God had laid out for me, a way that I could take care of my family and build this church and that there was nothing wrong with that. I was, in fact, living the dream because I was doing the very exact thing that he called me to do. And whatever place that I was in was the place that he wanted to be. He, it was miraculous that I even ended up there. And so I was living a life full of gratitude and thankfulness that there was a plan and there was a purpose that I was take care of and I was covered. But people were sad for me because I didn't have the stature that they thought that I should have had or that I once had that I had fallen. But that didn't expose anything in me. It only exposed something in them. But the truth is that same thing is in each and every one of us. That there is this stature that we must attain with our work, with our life, with our goals, with our status. To build a successful life and to build a successful church, we must achieve these things. But listen, you cannot, you cannot extract worth out of work. You can find worth and you can find contempt. You can find all kinds of things. We'll talk about what we can discover there. But God doesn't love you anymore because did a good job. Here's what's interesting. God puts Adam into the, into the garden to work. We all think that work, or like to think that work didn't happen in paradise. Work was a part of paradise. Responsibility was a part of paradise. That you had something to put your hand to, that you could build, that you could create, that you could craft something, that you could tend something, that you could build something. See, when, when God created all of the earth and he created everything, he had this simple plan in mind. We find it in Genesis 1, verse 28. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. And fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on earth. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Sorry, Genesis 1, 28. It will magically appear in three, two, one. There you go. Fill the earth and subdue it. Now, here, here's what's kind of, of cool about this idea. This idea of what does it mean to subdue the earth and what does it have any impact on me? Remember, I'm dropping a backdrop for the next five weeks. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. This idea of subduing is, is in, in fill, first of all, the idea of, of filling the earth is more than just a biological function. It's more than just procreation. The idea of filling the earth, because here's, here's the thing. Man was the only person that God told to fill the earth. 
there was a bigger intent, there was a bigger plan, there was a bigger idea. The idea behind filling the earth was to not just fill it by procreation, was to fill it and build it and civilize it, to build something, to make something, to manage it, to tend it, to organize it, to build something great. Here, you oversee this, look at all of this, all of this is yours, you do something great with it. The idea of of subduing is interesting because God made everything good, right? You stood back and go, man, this is, I did good work. <laughs> but within that good work, God left the earth to a degree somewhat undeveloped in perfection. God left deep, untapped potential <laughs> in the earth. He said, Adam, make something great. This is yours. Literally, this is yours to do. This is your responsibility. And so he invites us into his storyline as a creator, as a curator of this earth. And he looks at us and he says, there's a responsibility that I'm placing on you, man and woman society. Make something beautiful here. Within your life, when God created you, he created you with vast plains and territories, just using the earth analogy, of untapped, undeveloped potential for you to begin to extract and make something beautiful with. Deep with inside of each and every one of you, if, you're, if you were to imagine your life as a brand new earth, it's an undeveloped, or partially developed globe that God says, here, make something beautiful. And part of our human struggle is to take this untapped potential and discover what it is that we were made for, where our place is, and to make something of it. <laughs> is anyone, uh, anyone, let's just hope, let's hope we get this one. Has anyone prayed the Lord's Prayer before? Hey, we're winning. Bible plans, no. Lord's Prayer, yes. Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Earth as in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. We've got that verse. It's going to appear right here. Give us this day our daily bread. Have you ever thought about this, this thought? Give us this day our daily bread. As you pray, you're like, okay, Lord, give us some daily bread. You're like, so is that going to appear on the counter? <laughs> is this like a one loaf situation? Are there a couple varieties? You know, our Father, our heaven. All right, I can get on with this. Hallowed be there. Your kingdom come. Give us this day our daily bread. <laughs> bread, this is amazing. Christianity is amazing. I get bread every day. That's not how it works. I mean, it would be nice, right? Like, give us this day our daily bread. What are we actually praying for when we're praying for our daily bread? Think about Psalm 145, verse 16. You open your hand, this is speaking of God, you open your hand and you satisfy the desire of every living thing. Have you ever thought about how God gives us our daily bread and satisfies the desire of every living thing? Have you ever thought about that? I didn't much, to be honest. But Martin Luther, uh, in, his large in his large catechism, which makes me sound smart, but I have no idea what it means, this large document, uh, started to unpack this idea. He said, so when you're praying for the daily 
bread. You're praying that God would support you and give you some sustenance to your life. But if we just took the idea of the bread for a moment and said, what are you praying for? Is that you're not just praying for some bread to appear. You're not just praying for bread, but you're praying for some supply. But if you if you are talking about literally a piece of bread, then you're not just praying for the bread. You're praying for the farmer who's planting the field and you're praying for the farmhand who's bringing in the harvest and you're praying for the millwright who's going to grind it and you're pr- praying for the, the flour that's made and the, that the manufacturer of the flour bag company does well and the people that work in that factory would make a good bag that you could fill and put the flour into it and you're praying for the truck driver who picks that up in the grocery store that carries it and the website developer who's building the website so you can do click and collect it save on foods and you're praying for the stock boy who's there putting the cans on the shelves and making the display so you can go and get your red robin bag of flour you're praying for the person in the bake shop at save on foods or walmart or safeway or wherever it is that it shops and you're praying for the store manager that they would be a good manager that they would be able to cultivate and develop the skills and the abilities and the talents of that baker you're praying for the local bake shop and the landlord that they would give them a reasonable rent give us this day our daily bread did you do you understand that you are an integral part of everybody's daily bread of somebody's daily bread what if we could expand our our thinking, what if we could expand our minds, what if we could expand our thoughts, more than just saying, I'm going to build a successful life, and I'm going to build a successful legacy, and I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, and I'm also going to kind of build the house of the Lord, more than just that, what if we could understand that, that where you are, that, that there's purpose in your place, yeah, but I hate my job, but it's more than your job, it's not just about your vocational status, yeah, but you don't understand. I hate it. Okay, well, maybe God's teaching you some patience, son. Deal with it. Maybe he's teaching you to aim higher because you're, you, see, you see so little worth in yourself that you would never try anything else. We're going to look at the idea of work and not just works, but our craft. We're going to look at the idea over the next five thought that there's there's purpose in my place that God has created this template even in the beginning in Genesis that we just read over really fast to get over our daily Bible reading that there is intent in even those words that we picked over that there's a broader bigger plan at work why don't we stand together there's purpose in your place there's purpose in your place there's purpose in your place. There's purpose in your place. I'm not sure. I'm not sure how you view where you're at right now. Some of us are happy, some of us are content, some of us are satisfied, some of us are starting something new or finishing something old. Some of us are, are on the verge of retirement, even though we know that, even though we may retire a vocation, we never abdicate the throne of responsibility that God has put in our sphere. Maybe you're not thinking about any of this from a vocation angle. Maybe you're thinking about your place in life and that you're either satisfied, discontent, or you're really happy, but 
regardless, there's purpose in the place that God has brought you to this place, this season right now for a purpose, for a reason. There is a plan for you. You are an integral part of somebody else. No matter what society has told us, no matter what we've inherited from the Greeks, your work is worthwhile. You are worthwhile and you are not working to prove anything other than to prove the greatness of God. (laughs) You've been listening to The Engaged Life, powered by Engaged City Church. If you like what you heard, check out engagechurch.ca.